Welcome to COVID-19, Public Health Policy and Culture. I'm Dr. April Moreno, presenting information from various sources about the COVID-19 pandemic from public health policy and cultural perspectives. We will be sharing international accounts from policy, public health response, and even personal experiences firsthand about living in this era of COVID-19. Hello and welcome to our podcast, episode number 12 on COVID-19, public health policy and culture. I'm Dr. April Moreno. In my other podcast, we were celebrating the one-year anniversary of the Sisterhood of Limitless Living podcast. It's an autoimmune podcast for women where we talk about how to thrive and to be very proactive with our lives despite autoimmune and chronic illness. And so we just did one week of five full days of live podcasting. And then the following week was a three-day celebration to celebrate our one-year anniversary of the Sisterhood podcast. So that kind of explains the reason why this podcast episode is a little delayed here. Yeah, so we just had a great celebration. If you happen to be a woman living with autoimmune or chronic conditions, join us at the Sisterhood of Limitless Living podcast, which is also available on iTunes and Spotify and everywhere podcasts are heard. Here in the United States, we have prepared this, I guess, second wave of response to the pandemic even though we're seeing some numbers that have flattened. We haven't seen huge surges of patients in various emergency rooms across the country, which is good news. However, a lot of us are now just still afraid to set foot in the clinic for routine procedures, routine appointments. There's this continuing sense of caution out there. We are noticing the increase of people wearing masks, which is good news. But in the second phase, we haven't actually seen a resolution. We haven't seen numbers decrease in terms of the people who are infected, people who are dying. These things have actually not decreased. The rate in which it was increasing at that peak has slowed down, which is good news. However, we are not seeing a decrease in deaths, in infection rates in the United States. So we are in the second phase, ready or not, economically, politically, that's where we're at now. And the good thing is that we are wearing masks. And the good thing is that people are aware of protocols now, like they're clear on what they need to be doing. There seems to be a clearer sense of that six foot distance, those regulations that were out there, the guidelines even though some of the guidelines seem to be continually shifting on a weekly basis. Some of the guidelines have changed, but overall, the consistent one is that six-foot distance. And the mask wearing has been an increasing part of the conversation, which is good news. However, it is quite surprising that we are opening restaurants and allowing people to go in and sit in restaurants again. We have opened a lot of public places when we have not seen a decrease yet in the disease spread of the viral spread of COVID-19. And so that is kind of alarming and it's disappointing. So that's the second phase. We have now the next couple of weeks or so to see what's going to happen as a result of this new opening of things, reopening, and people who who tend to be among the most vulnerable populations, 
having to go back out to work now. And some people are receiving unemployment benefits, those who have lost their jobs. However, those who are working minimum wage in many cases are earning less than those who are unemployed. And, you know, for various reasons. So we have a few weeks to see what the new circumstance is going to look like. We've already seen in various churches and local spaces where um, local businesses have opened without regulation that soon after, a week or two later, there was the increase of infection rate. There was that increase of viral spread. It's frustrating. It's disappointing. People want their freedom. They have the freedom to experience those consequences, unfortunately, when we do have these conversations and we do international, federal, national, state, county level, when we try to provide these protective measures and guidelines and some people will choose not to follow them, it makes things very difficult with a communicable spread of this pandemic. And so in this episode, we're talking about Cuba And this is a great conversation I was able to have with someone who is an American who is living in Cuba at this present moment, going to medical school. And it's a wonderful conversation because of the fact that he's there with a lot of students from different nations. He's having an international experience in Cuba in medical school and getting to hear that perspective of how he sees the education of healthcare and treatment for pandemic times, how he sees the response locally in terms of policy and clinically in the neighborhoods of Havana. It's wonderful to be able to hear this and to hear what the culture has been like, to hear what the resources have been like, and also knowing that not too long ago, there was a team from Cuba who went to Italy to help provide during the time that the virus was at its worst not too long ago. So this is an ongoing story, but this episode, about a month ago, while we were still in our first phase of the shutdown, Cuba was in the same situation with the shutdown. Schools were shut down. People were restricted in terms of going out aside from essential activities. And now at the second phase here in the United States, we're not there anymore. We're opening for less essential activities now as people have developed some cabin fever and things have changed a little here but in terms of the numbers we have not decreased them we have not gained sense of control over these numbers and we will see what the second phase looks like here the only consolation is to know that more people are wearing a mask now and to know that if everyone wears a mask it does drastically help to reduce infection and the spread of the virus. I hope you enjoy this episode in Cuba as we talk about how things are being conducted and what the culture of collaboration and international awareness, shared knowledge and literacy of medical and healthcare policy looks like. So I hope you enjoy this episode, episode 12 of COVID-19 PPC. Guys, so thank you so much for being available. Can you introduce yourself to the podcast? Hi, Arpo. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, my name is Jidu Krishnamurti Sirkar. I'm a first-year medical student at the Escuela Latinoamericana Medicina, which is the Latin American School of Medicine in Havana, Cuba. Thank you so much for being available to speak to us today on the podcast. I'm very interested and very excited about hearing about life during the pandemic 
in Cuba and how things are being managed, especially from a medical school perspective, a medical student perspective. Thank you for being here. Could you tell us a little bit more about how you're doing personally in terms of your health and wellness at this time? And also what are things like, what is the current climate and landscape of navigating COVID-19? Yes, I think it's important to preface by saying that being here in Cuba, the population uh, the population is subject to a unjust economic blockade and embargo. So this affects life in every level, in every scale. With that being said, in Cuba, it's common for folks to experience shortages, to experience scarcity of certain items, whether it's toilet paper, toothpaste, or even things as extreme as like raw materials to produce medications or to produce certain medical technologies. So these are things that not only affect daily life, but it also affects how Cuba attempts to combat this pandemic. But personally, I, along with other students, are held in quarantine at the university. So we're here at school, we live on campus. And so here we have pretty much everything we need to live. You know, we have our water, we have our housing, we have our food, we have electricity, we have running water. So we have these basic necessities that, that we need. However, it is a little tough given that we're here on lockdown, you know, for the purpose of maintaining public health. We aren't allowed to leave school just as the population isn't allowed to like leave their houses unless it's for essential needs. So here in Cuba, the government authorized everybody to wear their face mask, which in Cuban Spanish is called nasobuco. So the Cuban government mass-produced nasobucos to provide to the population at no cost. And while I'm saying this too, is I want to mention that the healthcare here is a universal healthcare. So there, there is no fee to go to the doctor. If somebody feels sick, if someone is presenting symptoms, they can go to a doctor without the worry of getting sent a bill to the house of something they can't even afford just for a checkup. The nasobuco, along with People staying at home are mechanisms that the government is utilizing to combat this, this pandemic. And so one thing that you also see is that just recently transportation was halted. So there's no longer public transportation nor private transportation like private taxis and stuff like that in the country. What they do have is um, authorized government transportation for employees that work for essential needs. So folks that work in certain hospitals, folks that work in clinics, folks that work in grocery stores that are necessary for the population are authorized to work and are guaranteed transportation. But aside from the population that doesn't rely on that, they aren't authorized to work. So they're encouraged to just stay at home until the, the quarantine is over and until the pandemic is under control. In the United States, this is our first time in many populations and communities where we're actually experiencing these shortages of toilet paper, essential goods, food supplies, rice, beans, vegetables, fresh fruits and vegetables in many cases. And it's very interesting to speak to you at this time in a country, in a location where it's the norm in many cases where these things are often a shortage, at a shortage. Thank you for talking to us about what the shutdown looks like at this time. Basically the opposite of what it looks like here in terms of the academic side where people are no longer allowed on campus, but it's good to hear that you're able to continue with your studies in medical school despite the pandemic. 
And that is really good to hear. Could you tell us a little bit more about what's going well in terms of healthcare in Cuba at this time? And what can be improved, whether it be socially, culturally, or even just in terms of public perception of the way they approach the pandemic? Yeah, well, the reason why we still, you know, where there's still students on here is because all the students at this school are international. So they're foreign students, people from all over Africa, people from the Middle East, people from Southeast Asia, people from all over Latin America. So it's really hard to just send all these students home since they've already been like guaranteed this scholarship program to study medicine here. But as to how Cuba is responding, what's working well, I would say they've been really well at, at managing the situation because one, the public health care system allows this form of centralization of medicine around the country. So for example, every neighborhood has a consultorio, which is like a, like a family clinic where folks from the neighborhood can come and meet their doctor throughout the week and get any services that they need. And so within that little clinic, they have documented all the members of the community, their health, etc. And within these neighborhoods, you can also find a policlinico. So the policlinico is a little bit more advanced where there are more comprehensive programs that allow the population to be served. And then you have a series of hospitals that are located within the municipality, within the cities, etc. And then you have places of higher intensive care, which are like these, these centers people go to get their cardiology appointments, to get their ecology appointments, etc. What this system allows is for the population to be understood. It allows the health outcomes of the population to be understood. So if there is a recorded case, they're able to locate where the member lives, who is the family. They're also able to locate who have been the recent contacts of that patient. And so that patient that tests positive for coronavirus then has to get put in quarantine at the Institute of Tropical Medicine, Pedro Curi, which is IPK, uh, IPK. And it's an institution that specializes with infectious diseases here on the island. So populations that are being observed for suspicion are going to be hospitalized within a hospital. And so in addition to that, you can also see medical students and doctors are going corner to corner, house to house, neighborhood to neighborhood, asking patients if they have symptoms, if they've been in contact with somebody with symptoms. And so this allows people to really get the help that they need because you have these healthcare professionals going out of their way to ensure the health of the population. So that's why they've been able to, for the most part, control the rate of transmission. Of course, given the lack of technological development in the island, they're still able to do a lot more. And so at the end of the day, it's the healthcare system that allows the island to produce these healthcare professionals that are able to really combat this pandemic at the community level. So as to what could be improved, I think it's important to talk about the economic blockade and embargo that's imposed against the island. The island can't effectively treat a population 
that is undergoing a high rate of transmission and high rate of infection. So therefore, the island is the government is trying to do the most they can on this island to prevent this this large massive transmission. So the Cuba has a population of roughly 11 million and there are about 1,400 confirmed cases as of today. And so if we compare this to Ohio, a population of about 11 million as well, they have an extremely higher rate of transmission and an extremely higher population that's positive for coronavirus. And so I think that can kind of explain to you that that kind of determines that what we're doing over here on the island is more effective and it's less costly. Of course, they're two different contexts, but there is more that could be done here if they were, if there were more technological advancement. And that technological advancement can't occur under an economic and political blockade. So before anything, that's what needs to be changed. And that requires policy change in Washington. That requires senators and legislators to remove this unjust blockade against Cuba. Cuba hasn't done anything to harm you know, the world. In fact, there's doctors that are being sent all over, all over the world, even to Italy, a first world country. There was Cuban doctors sent there to combat this outbreak. There's Cuban doctors all over Latin America and Africa as well. It's just, it's key to, to know this because, you know, I'm a U.S. citizen and Unfortunately, my vote did not go to Trump, but the government that supposedly quote unquote represents me is contributing to disease, is contributing to the pandemic by not allowing this country to develop their medical technology. We're talking about the landscape of how things are going in Cuba and how it connects to, how it compares to Ohio as a state and population and how things have been have been managed, how things are being managed. I'm curious to hear in terms of your opinion of the trajectory, what is Cuba looking like? Are you seeing that peak yet? Do you think that you're about to reach the peak of the height of this disease spread? Do you think that it's nearing a reduction of the spread? Or are you seeing that there's gonna be various waves? How is the public responding to regulations and policies about staying home, protecting themselves, distancing. Are they really cooperative? Are you seeing these numbers quickly, drastically drop? What, where are you on that curve that we tend to talk about in the United States about flattening the curve? How do you practice self-care during this time? How are you managing during this time of uncertainty being in a different country, living in an international community at the university? What has it been like for you? I think it might be a little too early to tell if the curve is flattening um, in Cuba right now, but what we do know is that things are slowly improving. Like there have been several numbers of people that have recuperated from coronavirus, uh, from from COVID. However, those are like individual cases, and so there's still people every day being being diagnosed with the infection, and there's still deaths going on. However, the deaths are not at a extremely high rate because they're able to get the help that they need at the Institute of Tropical Medicine. They're able to be treated, but as you know, the treatments are limited because there's so many unknowns of this infection and of this, this virus. 
And so this is something that the Cubans are still studying every day. The Cubans, these doctors, especially in infectious medicine, infectious diseases, they're very knowledgeable. And every day they're gathering important data that's being used and being understood in, in this whole context. I think that the Cubans themselves, the Cuban population has been responding effectively to the quarantine. You don't see people like in Colorado protesting this quarantine wanting to get out. Over here, that would be seen as ridiculous. The population knows the severity of this disease, the severity of this pandemic. In my opinion, that's because people are more informed on the international scale and a domestic scale. Here in Cuba, people are respecting the quarantine. People understand that it is important to maintain where you are in order to prevent not just getting infected yourself, but possibly transmitting the infection to somebody else. This is due to the healthcare system and the ideas that it promotes, the ideas around public health, the ideas around solidarity, the ideas around promoting collective nature and collectivism. How does my self-care look during these times? You know, I think it varies. I'm a reflective person, so I, you know, I reflect a lot, especially given that it's the month of Ramadan. So we're in day three right now. So this kind of gives me the opportunity to reflect as to where we are as a people, as well as where I am as an individual. Uh, I think it is key to find self-care mechanisms during these times, but not just during these times, but in general. We live in a time where there is so much anxiety, so much depression, so much low self-esteem. And so the root of that, of course, is the systems that dominate in this world and in our countries. But it is also due to a lack of understanding of ourselves and our own mental health and the importance that we should be placing on that. So whether that's being in tune with art, I'm a person that's really in tune with my artistic side. That is something that every human should be involved with, whether it's sports, physical activity, whether it's mindfulness, meditation, spirituality, all these things are key for maintaining adequate self-care and, and adequate mental state. And so these are things that I balance you know, myself so that I can not only be healthy biologically, but also be healthy psychologically and be healthy socially because health is biological, social, and psychological. Health encompasses all these different aspects and contributors to human nature. Thank you so much for this beautiful description of how you're experiencing and managing and navigating COVID-19 during this time, this pandemic experience where you're located and bringing attention to the importance of the biopsychosocial aspect of wellness and healthcare. So thank you so much for mentioning all of that. Culturally, what has Cuba been like in terms of going out to places like the first world countries like Italy and other places historically, culturally? What has Cuba been like in terms of helping out around the world? What is the culture like in terms of wanting to go out and help people everywhere, even though they're experiencing a lot of shortages of resources and things like that, but being willing to go out there and help others. I highly respect the culture of health, the culture of literacy in Cuba, and knowing that they don't have that 
reactionary response to my freedom, whether or not it makes sense. Uh, that collectivist spirit, can you talk a little bit more on that and how they've been willing to reach out around the world to help? So you mentioned people have been able to get diagnosed, which is awesome. People have been able to survive. So you're not seeing a whole lot of like comorbidity in terms of dying from COVID, attacking other parts of the body, things like that. You're not seeing as many deaths as we're seeing here in the United States. I'm curious to hear about what testing has been like. We're hearing that technology is required in terms of testing, being able to read the test. How has Cuba been able to successfully diagnose? And then also in terms of health disparity, you know, in the United States, we have huge health disparities. We're seeing a lot of people of color dying at disproportionate rates. Can you tell us about health equity in Cuba? Yeah, Cuban medical solidarity and internationalism dates back decades ago, but primarily it can be seen when Hurricane Mitch occurred in the 90s, early 2000s, affecting so many third world countries within Latin America, Central America specifically, like Honduras, Nicaragua, Guatemala. There was a shortage of doctors there. So Cuba sent all these medical professionals because Cuba has one of the highest doctor-to-patient population ratios. Here you have doctors, like I said, in almost every corner in all these different clinics. And even on top of that was earthquakes going on in Pakistan and in Nepal. Cuba sent doctors there too. When there was wars going on, war-torn countries, seeing folks in Syria, you've seen doctors go out to Palestine. You see doctors go out to all over the world to help out the poor, to help out people that have been subject to injustice, people that have been practically abandoned by their governments. For Cuba, it's a question on humanitarianism. It's a question on human solidarity, on international solidarity, because Cuba doesn't ask for anything in return. I know this seems kind of, it's kind of weird, right? Because we come from a developed, quote unquote, first world country where everything is profit. And unfortunately, you see people dying left and right in the U.S. And so Cuba not only was able to send doctors all over the world, they're able to accept people, students, young folks from diverse backgrounds, from all these different countries to come back here, learn medicine, and go return to their countries and practice medicine there to improve their healthcare systems. So here at the Latin American School of Medicine, we have folks from... Palestine, from Syria, we have folks from the Philippines, we have folks from Colombia, we have folks from Laos, we have folks from all over the world, you can name it, countries all over Africa that are, that are impoverished nations that have practically non-functioning healthcare systems that are here to learn medicine so that they can go back and improve their people's health. There's so many lessons to be learned from the Cubans, one of which is medicine as a human resource. Yes, Cuba is poor economically, but they're rich in human resources. And that's one thing that will take the country far despite this economic and political blockade. So here in Cuba, as of today, we have about 1,369 confirmed cases and about total, it's 54 deaths, total 54 deaths, with a total of about 500 recuperated patients. So I think that, that says a lot. Cuba, an island, a small island, and was able to just have about 54 deaths 
you know, most of which were patients that were very old or immunocompromised patients. You know, this says a lot. We're not seeing the disparities we see in the U.S. where it, now we're starting to see young black and brown folks and immigrants being the target of this virus. And that embodies the health inequalities that exist in the U.S. Here in Cuba, that don't exist. Here in Cuba, health is a priority of the government and health is to be given to every patient here and it's guaranteed in their constitution. As far as testing, I'm not 100% sure, but it has to be the, the one that's most commonly being done, which is testing for the viral load of this coronavirus, as well as testing the antibodies, right, to see if the patient was able to develop those antibodies. So those are different things that could be tested within the population. Thanks so much, Didu. Is there anything that you would like us to share or that you would like to say about what the world needs to know during this time, based on what you've experienced, based on what you've seen locally in the region? Uh, what should the world know about COVID-19 at this time? I think that the world should know that it's important to be one informed, that it's important to understand the words of the professionals, of the healthcare professionals that are fighting this and to be skeptical of what our, our governments are doing for the health and well-being of the population. And I think that we can all take measures within ourselves, within our families, within our households to promote healthcare, to promote the well-being of our families. And it's important to continue to read and to understand that there is scientific evidence there's scientific evidence that we need to be understanding of as opposed to just trusting non-credible Facebook posts, Instagram posts, these social media posts that are very questionable. Jiju, thank you so much for being available to speak to us today on this episode of COVID-19, Public Health, Policy and Culture. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me and I appreciate all the work you do. So you probably are aware by now that we use Anchor.fm here on this podcast for COVID-19 PPC. And I wanted to tell you about Anchor.fm because this is actually the second uh, podcast hosting software I've used. And um, I really like it. I love how easy it is to use. I love the fact that it's free. And they have so many tools here like music and all these different options that help you record and edit your podcast either from your phone or your PC or your computer. And then Anchor distributes your podcast for you so that it can be on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more places. And then also you can even make money from your podcast with minimum, with no minimum listenership. And it's all you need to make a podcast in one place. So if you're new to podcasting and you're interested in um, getting started, I recommend Anchor.fm. So what you can do is download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Um, that's my recommendation. And, um, you know, after almost a year of podcasting, I'm really glad I found Anchor just recently. It just makes things so much easier. And, uh, yeah, come check out anchor.fm. you enjoyed this episode if you have any questions any burning questions about COVID-19 feel free to send me a message in anchor anchor.fm slash COVID-19 PPC is our website and 
until next time stay well and take good care out there